0: Well, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 16, and we'll begin in verse 18. And while you're finding Deuteronomy 16, let's back up for just a moment. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been here in Deuteronomy. Last time we began the section in Deuteronomy that gives the specific stipulations of the Israelite covenant, we already looked at the historical prologue, the general stipulations, the general commands, which are headed by the repeat of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5. And then we looked at the first part of the specific stipulations, which we're spending three messages on. And what we found out is that the the specific stipulations, broadly speaking, they flesh out the spiritual principles of the Ten Commandments. And they do so generally in the order of the Ten Commandments as well. And these specific stipulations take us from the beginning of chapter 12 all the way to the end of chapter 27. And so this is a a huge chunk of Deuteronomy. So we're taking several messages to go through these aspects of what I'm calling the covenant salvation life. The covenant salvation life. And last time we went through the first four commandments and assigned principles for living the covenant salvation life. We put commandments one and two together for what we called the principle of God honoring worship deuteronomy five seven through eight you shall have no other gods before me. you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Then we looked at the third commandment and the principle we called the principle of taking God's name Deuteronomy five eleven you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not." hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And then we looked at the fourth commandment in the principle that we call the principle of the punctuated life. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And we noted that while we as new covenant Christians are not under Sabbath law from the Old Testament, the principle of living a life punctuated by the gathering together of God's people is universal across the board in all eras of God's people. And we saw last time that the community of faith called Israel is governed by these Ten Commandments as a way to function to the glory of God as a very unified society. That was God's mission for them. And so we're going to pick up on that theme. And tonight we'll focus on that community of faith, that they are to be a community of faith. And we'll pick up in Deuteronomy 16, beginning in verse 18, which begins by fleshing out some specific outworkings now of the Fifth Commandment. The fifth commandment we'll call the principle of community authority. The principle of community authority. The fifth commandment, Deuteronomy 5.16, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. And so what we're going to see here is for an extended section in Deuteronomy, a progression of submission to authority the fifth commandment, the command to honor your father and mother. It teaches the citizens of Israel that God-ordained authority is all important and it's the foundation of a God-honoring society. We see this lived out very practically speaking in how God intends to a set-apart community of faith, how they're to live together when they're made up of a bunch of sinners. And so we see, we begin in the home with honor your father and mother, but immediately begins to translate into other authorities. And there's a growing progression, as I'll show you in just a moment. But now we see, how do a bunch of sinners live together under authority? And so God begins to outline this. Deuteronomy 16, verse 18. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God has given you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. And so you know this: that the very first people that are placed under authority who are to submit to authority are those who are in authority. How do we know this? The judges and officers are the judge according to righteous judgment. In other words, they submit to the law of God. They submit to God. They are not an authority unto themselves. They do not make mandates. They do not make edicts. They submit to the law themselves. And these judges and officers receive a very stern warning Verse 19, you shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice, and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now skip ahead for a moment to chapter 17, verse 2, and here we get an example of what is called case law. Case law is a a set of specific instances which God has already given guidance to the legal authorities. Chapter 17, verse 2, here's a specific case. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing His covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the hosts of heaven which I have forbidden, and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or three three of the witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So there's an example of case law, a specific instance where the judges don't have to really think about it. They just know what to do already. And then we get another example of case law, specific circumstances requiring the judgment of authorities. Chapter 17, beginning in verse 8, all the way through verse 13, outlines now that they have a higher court system. That if the local officials specifically feel that a a case of homicide is too complex to decide, the case is taken to the priests and a higher judge. And this is their Supreme Court. By the way, it isn't the defendant who takes it to the higher court. It's the judge who decides this. In wisdom, he says, I am not capable of making this judgment that goes to the higher court. And so what happens then? Chapter 17, verse 11. According to the instructions that they give you and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel and all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. Now, you know this, we skipped a little section because there seems to be an interruption between the first commands about judges and officials and the second and third commands about judges and officials. Look with me back at chapter 16, verse 21. There's a couple of little verses just stuck in here that don't seem to fit. Chapter 16, verse 21. You shall not plant any tree as an Asherah, Beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make, and you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. In other words, false places of worship. Chapter 17, verse 1, you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish. Any defect, whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. So why is there this little caveat about worship that just seems to be dropped in here in this longer section about justice? Well, it's not really dropped in. It's not really in the middle. It's actually part of a larger structure. And you kind of have to hang with me here for a moment. Chapter 12 through chapter 16, verse 17, overall is generally about worship. We looked at that last time. Chapter 16, verses 18 through 20 is about justice. Chapter 16, verses 21 through chapter 17, verse 1 is about worship. And chapter 17, verse 2 verse, uh, through verse 13 is about justice. So you have worship, justice, worship, justice. And so there's a balance here. What is this balance about? Now listen very carefully. This is, a, this is an important lesson from this text. Worship without justice leads to Pharisaical religion. That as long as you can appear religious on the outside, you can act as evil as you want. That's worship without justice. And on the other hand, justice without true worship leads to legalism. That as long as you can look like you're acting good, then true worship of God becomes irrelevant. And so God is teaching them to have an internal heart attitude of worship and justice. That out of a heart desire to worship God, you do what is right. You do what is just. And you know this a couple of times here. We will purge the evil from your midst. That is creating a just and a righteous society. That it would be purged. In Israel, they did not have prisons. They did not have a way to incarcerate people. They either repented or they were executed. And I know that sounds harsh to us. How's it going so far in our society? You know what they had in their society? They had peace. As long as the law was abided by. Now, in the continuing outline of authority in the community of faith... Now we get to an even higher level. We get to the laws concerning future kings. So we started with the parents. We work our way up to judges and officials. Now we're going to kings. And these aren't difficult to understand. But what I think is really interesting, beginning in chapter 17, verse 14, what's really interesting is what's missing. And so I'll tell you what's missing in just a minute. But first of all, what's here? Chapter 17, verse 14, When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Now there are some some specific guidelines. Verse 15, the Lord must choose the king and he can't be from a foreign nation. Why would the Lord put that stipulation in there? Well, it could be very tempting to have a powerful prince from a huge empire come to be your king to ensure Israel's safety forever. Verses 16 and 17, the king is not to abuse his office, to be obsessed with personal wealth and countless women, It doesn't deny the king the right to personal wealth, but that's not the goal of his office. Verse 18, the king is to know the law of God. How is he to do this? By writing a personal copy for himself. First thing you do as the king is you sit down and the priest says, here's a scroll, copy it. And you begin to learn the law of God. Verse 19, he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law. But what's interesting here is what's missing. When you compare to all the neighboring nations and what we know of the ancient peoples all around this area, generally speaking, in a king's job description would be a couple of other things. Normally, the king was also the head of the state religion, the pagan religion, and he would also and officially uh, supervise all the worship. So he was head of all worship, all things religious. He was also to be the chief judge to make the final decisions in all cases. Basically, a king in the ancient Near East was a dictator. This is not the case with an Israelite king. God has set up a completely different system. You have the priests over worship. You have judges over the justice system. And you have now the king over the executive branch. Does this start to sound a little bit familiar? You have a separation of powers, as it should be, in a theocratic society with basically three branches of government, if you want to call it that. You had the religious branch, the priests and the Levites who represent God to the people and represent the people to God. You have the judicial branch, the officials and the judges, and you had the executive branch, the king and his officials. Now, from our understanding of a governing system, what seems to be missing? A legislative branch. Why is that? Because mankind has never been called upon to make laws. Mankind has been called upon to keep God's law. Because if we just make laws, we're making up morality, right? Now, if we make laws that are an extension of the law of God, that's fine and dandy and that's good. But there is no legislative branch. God is the legislative branch. He gave the law. It's revealed by Revelation We'll come back to this system in just a minute with there, where there's three branches because there's some unfinished business due to the fact that we're still talking about a sinful society. They have crime, they have murder, they have theft. But this section continues on the theme of the principles, the principle of community authority. Chapter 18, verses one through eight, the community of faith is to financially support the Levites and the priests, the religious branch, so to speak. Those who minister in, to the people on God's behalf. And this principle of supporting them is out of respect for them, out of obedience to God. This is exactly the same principle we find in the New Testament in the church today where the church is to financially support those who who feed them the word of God, 1 Timothy 5. Chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, the principle of submission to authority warns the people not to adopt the disgusting practices of their neighbors, such as divination and human sacrifice, obsession with the dead, Instead, they're to submit to God. In the end of verse 14 says, But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Why? Because they're submitting to authority. Now, I said we'd come back for a moment to the three branches, the religious branch, the judicial branch, and the executive branch. God spreads the authority out. Why does God spread the authority out? Because even those in authority are sinners. And no one man should have supreme authority. And so there's Judges and priests and the kings. And we saw that there's a progression. You submit to the authority of your parents. You submit to the authority of local judges and officials. You submit to the higher court and officials. You submit to the authority of the king. And this progression now prepares Israel to submit to the only one who with perfect holiness and perfect sinlessness can be in and of himself the religious branch the representative of God to men, the judicial branch, the perfect righteous judge, and the executive branch, a holy, just king. Chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die, and the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever, does, whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the, word, the Lord, that the Lord has not spoken? When the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So there's a comparison here. There's the prophet who is to come, who is absolutely nothing like all the false prophets who will be all around him. Who is the prophet who is to come? Well, the Apostle Peter tells us, Acts chapter 3 Now, interestingly, Peter gives information that Moses didn't get or didn't have or at least didn't share. And that is that the prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, wasn't coming once, he was coming twice. And Peter explains this, that first, he would come to pay the penalty for sin. And then second, he would come to rule and restore all things for those who love him. And so ultimately, and listen carefully. This is the point of this whole section here. It, it points Israel to Christ. You start with honoring your parents. You teach little tiny children that they honor their father and their mother because that teaches them then to honor authority in general, the judges and the officials and the king. Why must they learn this? Because the true king is coming. To honor him by honoring, honoring the authority set up by him. And listen, that's a happy member of a covenant community. The one who honors earthly authority because of love for heavenly authority. That progression very clearly points them toward Christ. And this is the same for us as parents and grandparents. You, you teach your children to honor their father and mother because that translates then in, from human, in human terms, that translates then to understanding what it means to submit to God. You start in the home and you work your way toward God. It's still the work of the Holy Spirit who saves and who brings a small one to Christ, but it won't be uh, an absolute shock to them. Well, I submit to God as I've submitted to my father and mother. And so God has worked Israel through this process. How about the sixth commandment? We'll call this one the principle of community preservation. The principle of community preservation. The sixth commandment. Deuteronomy 5.17, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. And so the next section now in Deuteronomy extends and talks about the sixth commandment. And as you might expect, this section is long because it illustrates just how heinous the effect of sin really is. We're going to walk through this fairly quickly and then make some applications to this principle of community preservation But now God really gets into the realities of sinners living together. And the reality is is that we are murderous in our nature. We are killers at heart. First, God sets up some neutral territory to keep from becoming a nation of a culture of revenge and feuds. Chapter 19 Verse 1, when the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God has given you and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall set apart three cities for yourself in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall measure the distances and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession so that any manslayer can flee to them. Now, what is this about? Well, there were actually to be Six cities of refuge, three immediately to the west of the Jordan River and three more to be set up later. Well, setting up the second three never happened because Israel couldn't stay faithful. They couldn't stick to this system of covenant loyalty. But you notice that these cities of refuge are for manslaughter, for the manslayer. This is where we get this legal term, by the way. It is the unintentional slaying of a citizen. And God makes a distinction between manslaughter and murder. Look with me at chapter 19, verse 11. There's a distinction. But, verse 11, If anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks and strikes him fatally so that he dies, and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from... Israel, so that it may be well with you. Now, what does this do? Well, it creates a society that protects people from revenge because of an accident and it purges the community of the most wicked among them. Then the law seems to take a sudden turn. I thought we were talking about death, I thought we were talking about murder, and all of a sudden in verse 14, another verse seems to just be parachuted in here. You shall not move your neighbor's landmark. Which the men of old have set in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God has given you to possess. Is that really a sudden turn, though? Moving a boundary marker was essentially, in essence, trying to steal a family's livelihood. Because you just made their land smaller and made your land bigger. And considering the fact that your land was your entire fortune and it's how you lived, that very easily could lead to murder. In fact, in First Kings 21, Naboth the Jezreelite had a lovely vineyard that Jezebel, the wicked queen of Israel, wanted for herself. And ultimately, Naboth was murdered for his land. Jezebel didn't just move the boundary marker, she took it. And so this is exactly in the right place. You move a boundary marker and you're, you're asking for trouble. You're asking for difficulty. And as long as God was on the subject of murder and the justice system, he prescribes what it would take to convict a defendant. Chapter 19, verse 15, on the word of two or three witnesses. But then he warns immediately to watch out for the temptation of being a false witness. Chapter 19, verse 18. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. In in other words, whatever penalty the false witness was trying to get handed to his fellow citizen, that's exactly the penalty that shall be given to him up to and including execution. Why so severe? Oh, it's just a little white lie. No, this is severe because a false witness is literally trying to ruin the life of another person. By the way, this answers the question, just how seriously does God take slander and gossip? He takes it very seriously. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. What is corrupting talk? This is a tremendously valuable lesson for us. Corrupting talk is exactly what it sounds like. It is speech that misrepresents another or causes someone else to alter their view of another based on half-truths or lies or an out-of-context statement or even, even truths that weren't their story to tell. If you've ever heard it said, it's not gossip because it's true, no, it's still not your story to tell. And in the church of Jesus Christ, that is the bane of the church. How we slaughter one another with words. And this is something for all of us to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, are you in the habit of misrepresenting others through your speech? God considers it worthy of execution in the Old Testament. You want to ruin somebody else's reputation? You want to ruin their life? Everything according to this law that you wanted done to them ought to be done to you. Now, praise the Lord, we live under the grace of Christ, but you will notice if you did a study of the New Testament, you will notice that very often one of the reasons for church discipline is gossip and is slander because we ruin others with our mouths. In fact, listen to Paul's description of an unbeliever. Romans one, twenty nine and thirty. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God. Those three phrases right there, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, all put in together. Now we're not surprised that the section on crime and violence and death continues. Chapter 20, verses 1-9 through 9, clarifies that killing men in battle is the Lord's will in defense of your nation. In fact, God tells them not to be afraid. But He's very gracious. He also gives exceptions that if men in certain situations uh, don't want to be in the battle, then they don't have to be. And He gives some, some thoughts here. Young men who are newly married, or maybe some men just aren't cut out for battle. These men may freely withdraw from fighting service. And then you get, again, on the topic of crime and violence and death. Chapter 20, verses 10 through 20 explains how Israel may carry out their mission from Exodus 19 to be a kingdom of priests and make God known to their neighboring peoples. And we get a set of rules here of what to do with cities that stand in their way. And remember, they haven't started the conquest yet, so this is very important information for them. When they come to a city that is not within the boundaries of their new nation, they are to offer peace. But the condition is that the people become servants to Israel, and the obvious implication is that this gives this foreign people an opportunity to come to saving faith, that they become part of Israel. So basically it's like either you can become part of us or we're going to decimate your town and slaughter your people. If they won't take those terms, they're to be utterly destroyed as the judgment of God, as an offering to God. But for those Canaanite peoples within the boundaries of the land given to Israel, they're to be completely destroyed as the wicked people they are, Israel being the instrument of God's justice. Then God deals with the issue of unsolved murders. How sinful are we that we have to have all this section on murder and death and bloodshed? Chapter twenty-one, verses one and two: If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out, and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And what was supposed to happen then is the city closest to the site of the murder becomes responsible, and they're to take a young heifer and break its neck. Now, you might say, well, that's, they're, they're killing animals all the time in the Old Testament. Not this way. This is very unusual. They're not shedding the blood of the heifer. They're simply killing it by breaking its neck. And the elders of the town then were to swear that like the blood of the heifer was not spilled, so they have, in the same way, no idea who killed the man that was found. And what's the effect of doing this? Chapter 21, verse 9 so you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. This is very important because it means that the elders of the city are saying, we don't know who did this. And what's going to happen if one of them is lying? I guarantee you God will come after him and will judge him. And so they're, they're, put it this way, they're putting their hand on the Bible and saying, we swear we don't know who did, it, did this, we're not responsible. Then the next three laws deal with death and the family. You never see so much death everywhere. It's just all over the place here. We're still dealing with death and preserving a reasonable society. Chapter 21, verses 10 through 14 explains that if in a battle against a city outside the boundaries of the nation, you take captives and you wanted one of the women captives to be your wife, this would be because your parents had been killed She was allowed to mourn her parents before becoming your wife, but she's not to just be a slave. She was only to be a wife. And if you didn't want her as a wife, she was to be completely freed. She was to be safe. The judgment of total annihilation was only to be against the peoples within the boundaries, with Israel as the instrument of God's justice. Still dealing with death and with the family, chapter 21, verses 15 through 17 gives guidelines to keep inheritances fair. And we know from the story of Jacob and Esau that an, an inheritance dispute can lead to attempted murder. And then finally, in chapter 21, verses 18 through 21, he gives the law of the execution for a rebellious son who will not listen to his parents and will not obey all of the men of the city the gather to stone that young man to death. There's no record of that actually happening, but I'll bet that when that law is read in the home that there's some quiet teenagers And take a wild guess how obedient the rest of the kids in town would be if that law was ever carried out. And now we get out of the realm of the family into society in general. Chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. An executed citizen is to be, for one day, an object lesson to the whole nation. We don't do this now. It might be a better idea. Chapter 21, verse 22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. This isn't hanging like by the neck, by a rope. This is putting him up on a tree after he has been executed. And it's an object lesson for everybody to walk by and say this is what happens to one who rebels against God. Chapter 22 verses 1 through 7 are a short collection of miscellaneous laws that help a society to be kind to one another. Helping your neighbor who's lost some livestock. Helping your uh, not wearing clothing that's not for your gender. Why is that? Why were men not to wear women's clothing and women not to wear men's clothing? Because it causes chaos in society. and We see this lived out right now in our own nation. Even to the point here of caring for a bird's nest. With young or eggs in it. Little laws to help a society be kind. In other words, the preservation of the community of faith is absolutely comprehensive. And we have to deal with the worst among us. Now, we don't live in a community of faith geographically, not until Christ returns. But we do live in a community of faith spiritually. And that is, as being part of the church and dealing with the realities of the sin in the church to preserve the community of faith. That's to be part of our spiritual life as well. And consider just a few of the mandates for the church of Jesus Christ. The very first command ever given to the church by the Lord Jesus before the church even existed. Matthew 18, beginning of verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. And then you know the rest of Matthew 18 that you move up to more witnesses. And finally, you tell it to the church to say, please call this person to repentance. And if he won't repent, then you tell it to the church again and say he's to be treated as an unbeliever and he's disfellowshipped. 1 Corinthians five eleven. but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. Now, Paul is very clear in 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6 that if somebody doesn't call themselves a Christian and they do all those things, you're free to be their friends because Of course, they're going to do those things and we want to lead them to faith in Christ. But somebody says, I am a follower of Christ and yet I am disobediently and rebelliously and repeatedly and unrepentantly doing these things. We're not to associate with them. An idolater, a reviler. What's a reviler? Somebody who destroys the reputation of others. You don't associate with that. 1 Thessalonians 5 14 we urge you brothers admonish the idle encourage the faint-hearted help the weak In titus 3 verse 10 is for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned and of course now we have one of my favorite passages on this not confronting others confronting yourself Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. This is confronting your own sin. I, not to be harsh, but churches that have a sign in front that say all are welcome should take it down. Who is welcome in the church of Jesus Christ? Those who are seeking salvation and those who are saved. But those who say they're saved and are causing problems and difficulties are not to be welcomed. They're to be taught. The apostle Paul turned to Alexander and Hymenaeus. He said over to Satan that they may be taught not to blaspheme. First Timothy 1. Let me put it in terms we can understand the young lady getting ready for her wedding day and she's in the, in the bridal room and she's getting ready and she has her beautiful new white dress and, and a bunch of kids want to come in and start throwing mud on the dress. Would the bridesmaid say, oh, all are welcome. Here, you can get this spot here. You can, you can nail her right here. You can smear anything you want. No, because we're concerned for the purity of the bride, just as Christ is. Praise the Lord that we are under the grace of Christ and that our sins are forgiven day after day after day. But the community of faith is to preserve its own purity. It's always been that way with Israel. It is to be that way with the church. And just as God was vitally concerned for preservation of the community of faith, he continues to be concerned for the preservation of the church because a local church that has no standards Becomes like a nation that has no death penalty or a nation in which criminals are running the show. Jesus severely rebuked the church at Thyatira in Revelation 2 because the church looked the other way when massive, heinous sexual sin was happening right under their noses and they looked the other way. By the way, who did Jesus rebuke? He rebuked the leadership of the church. He said, I have this against you, singular, one guy. Who is that? The angel, the human messenger of the church at Thyatira. We would put it this way, the senior pastor. That's who Jesus rebuked. Instead of total chaos becomes, uh, instead of total chaos now, because sin is abounding, we have to have a solution. What's the solution to this? We've just seen bloodshed and violence and sin just rampant. The solution brings us to the seventh commandment, The principle of community holiness. The principle of community holiness. The seventh commandment says, Deuteronomy 5.18, You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. And more broadly, that's going to simply talk about holiness, being set apart, being different. This next section is all about not mixing purity with impurity. Impurity. The first several laws are illustrations, reminders. What do we mean by not mixing purity with impurity? I tried to make a cake when I was a kid, and we didn't have enough sugar. Salt looks the same, so I thought it would work just fine, but it doesn't work. You can't mix that which is pure and that which is impure. And so there's some some illustrations, little reminders. Chapter 22, verse 9. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited, that the crop you have sown and the yield, the crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. What is that? Is it inherently sinful to wear polyester and cotton mixed together? It doesn't come out of the wash too well, but it's not sinful. Why is this a rule for them? It is an illustration. Don't mix things that God has ordained not to be mixed. And so they have these these pictures right there and then God gives a law meant to remind them of this principle. Verse 12, you shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. What were the tassels for? Numbers 15 verse 39 says the tassel is for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes which you were inclined to whore after. And so you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. So the men were to wear these tassels as members of God's covenant community that you simply don't go after whatever your heart desires. Little kids in Sunday school coloring pictures of Jesus. Like the child who said, I know what God looks like because I just drew a picture of him. But these kids who are coloring pictures of Jesus, almost never do you see an historically accurate uh, rendering of Jesus. He should have tassels because he wore them. Because he was a law keeper. And now you have these illustrations and reminders. Now you get to the reason why. Marital fidelity. Marital fidelity. And now six situations are discussed in the law. And I'm not going to go into detail. I'll just kind of list them for you. These six situations, you have a charge of unfaithfulness being brought by a husband. And that charge turns out to be false. What's supposed to happen? The husband gets whipped. Verses 13 through 19. You have procedures if the charge turns out to be true. In that case, the wife who is guilty is to be stoned to death. You have the situation of adultery with a married woman. Both of them, the man and the woman, are to die. Verse 22. You have the sexual immorality with an engaged virgin in the city. Both of them shall die because the assumption is that the young lady didn't cry out for help in a crowded city. And they would be very, very crowded. That would be easy for her to do. So the assumption is, is that she went along with this. Then you have sexual immorality with an engaged virgin out in the country. Only the perpetrator shall die because there is no one to help the woman. And finally, you have sexual immorality with an unengaged virgin, verses 28 through 29. Very, very natural consequence. This man just bought himself a very expensive wife for life. He may not divorce her for any reason whatsoever, that he is to do the honorable thing. And now, once again, we get back to representative pictures, to illustrations, and they're, they're blatant and they're extremely personal. Chapter 23, verse 1, no man whose genitalia is damaged can worship with the rest of God's people. Chapter 23, verse 2, no one born of a sinful sexual relationship. If your parents weren't married, you can't worship with the rest of God's people. Chapter 23, verse 3, no one descended from Ammon or Moab who were conceived, you recall, when Lot's daughters had relations with their own father. They may not worship directly with God's people. The reason is given in verses 4 through 6, both the Ammonites and the Moabites were unfriendly and dangerous to Israel as as those verses explain. But then there's a different exception, verses 7 and 8, the descendants of Esau, Jacob's twin brother, and Egyptians are to be welcomed to be worshipped by God. Why? Because the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, are related to Israel and the Egyptians housed Israel for 400 years. Now, God is being very detailed in who may or may not worship in the assembly. He is not being cruel or inhumane. What he's showing is the high value of holiness and that only God determines who may appear before him. By the way, the whole idea that the the Moabite could not enter into the assembly, it doesn't mean that they couldn't be part of the community. It just means they couldn't go into the central place of worship. And the the argument against this sometimes brought out is Ruth who was a moabite what happened with Ruth well Boaz was a lawkeeper Ruth was a lawkeeper meaning she enjoyed the fellowship of God's people she told her mother-in-law that your people will be my people your god my god but she did not go into the assembly because she was a lawkeeper as well these illustrations of God's insistence on Israel being a nation that is holy, that is different, that is set apart. It continues even with some basic hygiene laws. I won't go into this in detail, but chapter 23, verses 9 through 14 tells you where you may and may not go to the bathroom, as we would put it. And finally, in this section, verses 15, the slaves in their midst are even to be treated well. and verse 16, no child born to Israel shall be given over to the degradation of prostitution. You see the major principle of holiness in the community of God's people, most importantly expressed in marital fidelity, that's really the foundation. It has definite implications for us. And this is something that is not popular to preach. How often in American churches do you hear a pastor say, we're going to talk about holiness. We're going to talk about being set apart. We're going to talk about being different. That's just not done anymore. It's not done I'd like to show you how this principle has made its way very, very clearly into the new covenant. And I want to finish up tonight by having you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. You remember what this whole section we just went through in Deuteronomy is about? It is about not mixing that which God has ordained to not be mixed. How does this work for us? How are we to not mix that which God has ordained not be mixed together? Well, first of all, Peter lays the foundation of the biblical gospel that we don't please God by means of good works. We're saved by God's grace from our sins. First Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, very clearly, all the commands coming after this is not the idea of, of you please God and make him have favor towards you by your behavior. It's that you've been saved by the grace of Christ first, but now, as those who are saved... Peter addresses these believers who are going through suffering. And what does he command that we do in the midst of living in a world that's full of suffering? Chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And now for the rest of the book, basically Peter addresses what not to mix. Let me just do a few examples and then we'll be done just some samples don't mix faith and hypocrisy don't mix faith and hypocrisy chapter one verse 22 having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of god in other words our love for one another is to be genuine born out of a true heart remade in christ we don't Mix hypocrisy or faith with hypocrisy. Peter would say, don't mix trust and revenge. Don't mix trust and revenge. Chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Believers don't deceive. They're not malicious. They're not envious. They're, they're, they don't slander. Instead, we trust the Lord to deal with those around us that are difficult or that may be false believers don't mix trust and revenge don't mix purity with lust don't mix purity with lust chapter 2 verse 11 beloved i urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh of the flesh which wage war against your soul keep your conduct among the gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify god on the day of visitation what's the purpose for your conduct your proof that the living God has changed your heart. Your life has to be proof. Peter would say, Don't mix mix submission with rebellion. Don't mix submission with rebellion. Chapter 2, verses 13 through 17 speaks of being subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And yes, unjust things will happen, but as Christians, we're not to be known as dissidents, we're not to be known as rebels when it's almost never necessary to do so, God will vindicate. God will set all things right in his time. How about this one relevant for our culture today? Don't mix suffering with self-victimization. Don't mix suffering with self-victimization. Chapter two, verses 18 through 20. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. What do ungodly people do? They act sinfully, they act horribly in our society, and then when they're brought to account for it and held accountable, they cry victim. It says, don't do that. Believers don't do that. Suffer for the Lord's sake. Don't cause your own suffering by your own terrible ha- behavior and then cry foul. Don't mix a quiet spirit with a contentious spirit. Don't mix a quiet spirit with a contentious spirit. Chapter 3, verse 1 Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Verse 4 But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. That in this case, a wife is to endure difficulties. She's to win her husband with tenderness. Did you notice this? Without a word. Ladies, what does your sin nature tell you to do? It tells you to use a lot more words. This says, win his heart without a word. You endure this with tenderness. Don't mix protective love with overbearing control. Don't mix protective love with overbearing control. Chapter 3, verse 7 Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Unlike the rest of society, husbands are not to to domineer and control and humiliate their wives. They are to be tender and loving and kind and and care for them as, as one who is precious. Don't mix unity with contention. Chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Don't mix selfless service with selfishness. Chapter 4, verse 8. All the way over in chapter 4, we have this uh, great little phrase here. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And then the next three verses tell tell us as believers to serve the church selflessly. Don't mix trials with bitterness. All the rest of chapter 4 is pretty much about suffering well and what to do in the midst of it. And it ends, chapter 4, verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Don't be bitter in the midst of a trial. Don't mix leadership with power. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 1 So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and the witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Leaders in the church aren't dictators. They do have authority. It is real authority, but it's to be wielded carefully. Don't mix spiritual humility with spiritual pride. Chapter 5, verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. And here is the pride that can creep in. Be sober-minded. In other words, don't think you know everything that's going on in the spirit realm. Be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Don't mix true peace with false hope. Very last phrase of the last verse, chapter 5, verse 14. Peace be to all of you who are in Christ. Only the Christian can have true peace with God and true peace in God. You see that all of 1 Peter is just a working out of the 5th, 6th, and 7th commandments, particularly the 7th commandment of holiness and purity. Don't mix that which God has said is not to be mixed. First Peter is a great illustration of that. The covenant life of the faithful Israelite was a life set apart from the world around them. They're completely out of step with the world. If an unbeliever says to you, you seem very odd to me. You You seem like you don't really belong here you should say, praise God, then the life I'm living is noticeable. What did Peter call us in chapter 2, verse 11? Sojourners, means travelers, and exiles. We don't belong here. We don't belong. So how are you to live? If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The theme is the same. Old Testament Israelite, you separate yourselves from the world. You are not to mix that which God has said is not to be mixed. New Covenant Christian, you are separate from the world. You're a sojourner. You're in exile. You are not to mix that which God has said is not to be mixed. And you look upward, and you look for Christ. Christ. Because there will be a day when nothing gets mixed. Zechariah 14 says there will be a day, and it's kind of almost a a, a silly picture, there will be a day when everything, even the pots and pans in your house, are stamped holy to the Lord. Every single one of them. That'll be a great day, won't it? Well, you are amazing. Seven chapters of Deuteronomy. We should hand out certificates or something. But let's, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time tonight. I cannot speak for those listening, but I can speak for myself. I am reminded that I don't belong here. I am a sojourner. I am an exile. I am a stranger. And Lord, my prayer for all of us is that we live lives that make that very clear. That we are attractive to the lost by the fact that we are nothing like them. And that they may be curious about the gospel because they see the the impact that the gospel has had in our changed lives. Help us, Lord, to live as the community of faith in fear of God, in obedience to our Savior Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, living out the fruit of the Spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.